Hey fellow nerds, welcome to Research Hole, a podcast where I talk to artists about the research holes we fall down on the way to our projects. I'm Val Hal, and you may have noticed there's been a lot of writers on the roster lately, uh, mainly a lot of children's book writers. So I wanted to switch it up a little bit, um, and that is one of the many reasons why I invited Jamie Caparizzo on the podcast. Uh, she is a singer, specifically. Mezzo-soprano Jamie Caparizzo began her career in the classroom, and upon completing five years of teaching choral music, earned a vocal performance degree from the University of Notre Dame. While located in the Michiana region, Caparizzo appeared with the South Bend Symphony Orchestra and Notre Dame Vocal under the batons of Dr. Carmen Helena Telez and Dr. Nancy Mank. Recent credits include Tehillim with Grammy Award winner Third Coast Percussion and Hansel and Gretel and Cosi Fantuti with the South Bend Lyric Opera. Jamie can be heard in Robert Keir's Oratorio Paradiso, recently released by Albany Records. During this time of social distancing and electronic performances, Jamie is on roster with the Chorosynthesis Singers and a new member of Voxphilia, conducted by Dr. David McConnell. In addition to her performance endeavors, Ms. Caparizzo serves as the Senior Director of Mission and Ministry at Alvernia University in Reading, Pennsylvania. Jamie, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much, Val. Thanks so much for having me on this evening. We're so excited. I, me, I and, me and the random audience that listens, I think, because like some of them are my parents and they love you. Yay, I love them too. Oh my gosh. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Frank. You guys are the best. And some of them are randos, and we love them. Uh, and Hello, also. <laughs> you are not randos to us. No. And, and I think they're excited. I imagine they're excited because they're like, oh, finally, someone who's not another children's <laughs> not book a, writer. Not another children's author. I love it. <laughs> well, I feel very special to be the first vocalist and musician invited onto the podcast. And Val, this is my first podcast. So I am Ever? thrilled. Yes, girl. My first one, like making it, learning a little bit more about what you do as a podcaster. I've just started listening to podcasts recently. So it's very exciting because I've been really interested in how to make podcasts. Um, but that'll be a different podcast interview and visit with the two of us because I have an idea for a podcast and it just hasn't happened yet. So I think we need to have another podcast that's called Things That Jamie Wants to Do But Never Starts. Because, <laughs> girl, I will get you a list. And all of our lovely random people in the audience tonight, please follow our podcast. Yeah, things that Jamie wants to do but never start. I, I I am intrigued. Oh, good. I'm glad. It sort of fits in with the research hole that we'll talk about this evening. Oh, have you never started your research hole? Correct. You just want to do it. Yes, I want to do it. I want to talk a little bit more about it. And I, I'm um, excited to share why this is such um, a passion project for me and how it's influenced just kind of where I might be going in my career. So think of it as a research hole slash career hole. Amazing. Okay, before we get into that, I just yeah. want to give listeners the context of course. that of our friendship. 
Okay. Uh, yes. Which is- <laughs> it's epic. Guys, it's epic. I mean, I don't have that many friends from my childhood still that Aww. that I've managed to keep this whole time. You might have more because I feel like you're really good at keeping relationships going. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I don't know about that. but <laughs> Jamie and I, I think we met, we were friends in high school. Yes. But I think we got really close our senior year. Mm-hmm. Because me, Jamie, and one other friend who we also love and dearly, um, we were all applying to colleges differently than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Because That's we right. all wanted to be performers of some sort. Mm-hmm. And I think you were applying, was it voice? You were applying to voice programs. I was not. As a matter of fact, I started off applying for instrumental music education. Oh, that's right. I forgot yeah. you did that. That's I, know. <laughs> I know. I know. Because you sang crazy? the whole time. Like you man- you clearly really wanted to sing because I you did. managed to like make that yes. part of college for you. I did. Thank you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. We were we were like applying to colleges and we all wanted to do various fine arts tracks and, and degree programs. And we were having some struggles. I do remember. We were just real emo just in our personal lives and also we no one understood the sort of like extra level of stress we were under because we all had to audition that's right oh boy we we would like commiserate about the audition circuit because we all not not only did we apply to colleges but we also like had to go to these cattle call auditions for colleges yeah it was crazy and i mean you are the person who's still doing the thing Oh, oh my gosh. Which is amazing. I mean... I don't know. I feel like you're still doing the thing. I'm doing a different thing. I haven't acted since, like, I was, like, 24. Okay. I think I'd like to act again. I wanted to be an actress really bad when I was 18. Um, And she was also really good, you guys. She's amazing. You're welcome. It was, was like, a really core part of my identity um, for my whole childhood and also... Mm -hmm. College, a little bit less, but, like, still acted in college a lot. Yeah. yeah. And right after college, I I did a few little gigs. I did mm-hmm. um, a traveling community theater. No, it was a traveling, like, children's theater. It was a, yes, it was out in Iowa. It was in, it was based in Minnesota, but we went okay. to all the surrounding states. So we went That's to right. Iowa. We yeah. went to the Dakotas. Wow. And we would perform in classrooms, um, two of us right. at a time. We would perform all these, like, plays that the school would order, which were, like, don't bully each other, kids. Or, like, yep. uh, you know, I don't know. Like, we did one about barrel burning, which is, what? like, very specifically a rural thing. It's, like, don't burn your trash outside. It's bad for the environment. Please tell me that there was a song associated with that. Um, we, my partner and I, you could sort of like make the scripts your own. And my partner and I did do a lot of like theatrical stuff with it. We didn't have full songs because I, I could never sing. And this is, was a big difference between me and Jamie because like, Mm. I wanted to be an actress. You can do that as a grown person. I think if you're like going to LA, I mean, it's hard, but like you can go to LA and like try, um, but in high school, you just uh, 
everyone just only does musicals. Um, right. Yeah, it's true. And I, I cannot sing. I love to sing, uh, but it's not my forte. Um, I'm like more of like a karaoke guy. Heck yeah. <laughs> Um, but but Jamie. So anyway, enough about me, Jamie. Um, I I'm really like, enjoying this trip down memory lane. I it's really good, right? Love it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, oh, and PP five, and we're like in our mid thirties now, and I've watched Jamie go from being an excellent uh, fairy godmother in the um, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical Cinderella. Um, singing impossible to like singing like full operas. It's been fun. It's been a wild ride. Yeah. So your wow. voice. So you've been developing vocally mm-hmm. for like decades. Yeah. Um, and th- that's really kind of the fun part, I think, about being um, being a vocalist in general and being a woman. Like heck yeah, being a woman. You know, the female <laughs> voice does not really mature until around age 40. So What? Yeah. Is that it's, true? It's very true. What does so it mean for a voice to mature? Um so you a a voice um for someone who identifies as female um you know can really uh, although I I guess I would also have to say oh my god Val we're discovering a different research hole because for, <laughs> for a person who is biologically female that, right, because the voice is a function of the human body. Right. Uh, for, so, for a person who is biologically female, the voice would not really develop. So that means, um, are you are you accessing colors in your voice? Are you accessing the vocal range? Uh, is your body learning how to be in sync with itself when it comes to the process of breathing and phonating, which is the process of creating sound? Um, resonance, which is how we use the body's natural capacity to amplify our sound. Um, really, for a female voice, it just doesn't mature. It doesn't really reach the pinnacle of all of those factors of the human voice until the woman is 40 years old. Wow. And it's pretty cool because as I've been learning and um, taking voice lessons, I will say, I went back to school to get my master's degree when I was a little bit older. I was like 27, just going to be 28. And I had spent time teaching in the schools, like Val was very kind to read my bio when we first started our visit tonight. Um, and yeah, so- Yeah, you taught music to middle schoolers. That's right, that's right. I taught choral music to middle schoolers and I thought, okay, could I do this every day until I retire? And I'd always had this, um, this desire to get my master's degree in vocal performance because I love to sing. And truth be told, I feel most alive when I'm performing for people. Um, so I knew that I had to go back, even though I had a group of kids that I really loved to teach. It kind of broke my heart to leave them before they graduated from eighth grade, but I knew that I was doing the right thing. And so even as I learned how to use my voice properly through vocal training um, in my late 20s, I will say, you know, just talking back to that piece about the female voice not really maturing until age 40, it was, um, so from two to five years after receiving my degree and my formal training, that's when I noticed the most improvement in my voice. 
So that's not to say that I didn't receive good training. I had excellent training, meaning that my teachers were excellent, but my body didn't really, um, like, like the techniques I was learning didn't really feel authentic to my body and they didn't feel like I understood them until after I finished my degree program. And by that point I was in my mid thirties. So it's exciting to think about where the voice can go you know, as one continues to age. And the fact that when aging for women in particular seems to be such a negative connotation, I think for female vocalists, um, or for those who were born female and have a female voice mechanism, um, I think it's wonderful because it's empowering. It's empowering to think I can still learn, I can still progress, and my voice has room to grow, literally and figuratively speaking. That's fucking beautiful. Thanks. I never knew that. I find that fact really exciting. Um, I would one day love to find someone, like, I don't care if it's like assigned male at birth or assigned female at birth, uh, yeah. trans voice coach yeah. to be on this show because I've, I've listened oh, to someone I've listened to a voice coach talk about like voice coaching for people who are transitioning before and it is fascinating like they're basically saying like you can access the vocals you want but it has to be like with your voice you can't strain and like how do you do that and I mean it's fascinating uh but someday hopefully (laughs) oh my gosh see that's gonna lead me into another research hole because (laughs) Because until this point, right, I've only really thought about the voice in binary terms. But you're right. How do we look at our our transgendered friends and those who are transitioning? Yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah, I mean, voice coaches, I think, are a thing. Yeah. I don't I don't know much about it. I don't want to pretend that I do. Um, but I think it's especially a thing for people who are assigned male at birth, right. who are trans women. Um and who want to like access that upper range um which can be damaging if you don't do it the right way correct right i have to ask as a um as like selfishly does this mean if i said fuck everything i'm doing i'm gonna just dedicate myself to learning how to sing do you think I could I could be decent by the time I'm 40? Absolutely. You think so? Yeah, I think you could be decent way past 40. Absolutely. But I'm... you're saying the voice matures at 40. Correct. So there's some kind of like setting in that happens. C- correct. There's some kind of settling in that happens. Absolutely. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not going to say fuck everything, but... Okay. It'd be fun. <laughs> it would be fun. And, I, and I'm a firm believer that singing is an innate human ability um, and that we all have the capacity to sing and to make music. Um, I'm working with a student right now at Alvernia who is uh, doing an interfaith project and her interfaith project centers around music. So here's another research hole for you podcast fans. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and the idea is we talked about what kind of instrumentation this student wanted in her project. And she said, well, I have to have singing because that was the first human expression of music. And I absolutely agree. In addition to clapping, you know, and body percussion, 
the, the human voice was the first way that we could express ourselves musically. You want to talk about bel canto singing, right? I, be, I bel, ca- bel canto singing? Bel canto, yes, bel canto. It is a tall ah, the Italian ah. So um, what is bel canto? Bel canto is a stylistic um, reference to singing. It's the Italian phrase, literally, bel, beautiful, canto, singing. So this is an Italian school of singing that is very um, uh, fitting for the 18th and 19th centuries. And it is the, if you will, the Italian ideal of what a classical vocalist should sound like. So this, this approach encompasses vocal production, how the body you know, phonates and creates sound. It also encompasses stylistically what the voice does. So it's very lyrical, very connected or legato phrasing, and a very full and robust sound. Um, that is made as naturally as possible as the human voice will allow. Wow, that seems really broad, but I think you're describing something very specific. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so, you know, and I, I, we learned the term bel canto like right away uh-huh. um, as we as we start learning vocal music. And so I was thinking a little bit about if I were to specify it as best I can, Um, I guess I could use this definition that I found a little bit earlier. So I'm not, I'm not quoting myself earlier. I was giving you my own interpretation and now I'll try to pinpoint it a little bit more. Um, it does mean beautiful singing. And according to Britannica, it is a style of operatic singing that originated in Italy, um, during the late 16th, but developed in Italian opera through the 17th and into the early 19th centuries. Um, And specifically, Britannica goes on to say that using a relatively small dynamic range, it's based on control of the intensity of your tone. So it really does have a lot to do with how you produce your sound. Jamie was kind enough to share a sample of herself singing bel canto to give us an actual example of what it sounds like. This is a amore e un Landroncello from Cosi Van Tutti. We'll play a little now and we'll play the full song at the end. <laughs> So, so it's a lot about like deciding on whether you're going to, I, 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 this seems like an oversimplification, but like push it, right? Like sing more loudly, sing more vibrato, like things like that versus quietly at certain points or no? That's one of the ways to think about it. You also think about how does my body help me to sing well? So, you know, what is the position of my lips? What is the... Um, what's the position of my larynx and larynx is 
the technical term for what some people refer to as the voice box, you know. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I do remember taking voice lessons in high school because I, you guys, I wanted to sing so bad. I really wanted to be good at singing. It just like never happened. But I think through I voice. I still think Val is good at singing. Okay. Aw, aw, but you're just, just nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think by the time I was done with voice lessons, I could sing on pitch. Okay. And I think I was, I couldn't even do that before. So I made some progress. There you go. I remember like them constantly, you, even in early, early voice lessons, yeah, you become very, very aware of the larynx and like where it is and whether you're pushing there, like whether Correct. you're like, yeah, because they, they make you sing from there as don't sing from your throat. And it, mm-hmm. it's like a mental thing, right? It is. That's right. Singing is, is just as much physical as it is mental. And the, the goal, I think, depending on who you are as a person, um, is to trust what the body feels like and not be in your head so much. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how, it, and it how really, do you do with that? How, how do you feel like you... It, it took a long time. Um, it took a long time to get out of my head and to get into my body. And I would say that's the benefit of continued vocal training and, and working with wonderful teachers. Um, my teacher, Stephen at Lancaster at the University of Notre Dame, was an amazing teacher for me. Um, he... He helped me to get out of my head and and get into my body more. Um, Stephen had a mirror, of course. He had two mirrors in his studio so that we could indeed view ourselves. And once again, for women in particular, this can be a real head game. Oh, fuck yeah. Right? Because like you stop focusing on your voice and you start thinking about like how big your boobs aren't, in my case, or (laughs) how much weight you've put on since you started graduate school. Um, And it can be, it's very personal because aside from other instruments, and I don't mean to um, to try to speak to my instrumentalist friends, I did grow up also playing the piano and the flute, so I feel as though I can speak to this with authority, but because the voice comes from inside the body, regardless of who that body is, it feels more personal than, say, playing the flute, which I also grew up doing and studied in college. Um, if I make a mistake on the flute, you know, there might be an issue with the instrument, right? Uh, A pad may be leaky, the flute might be flat or sharp. Um, There may be an external reason that I sound poor uh, or that I didn't perform well. But when you're singing, if you don't perform well, it's really hard to disassociate negative feelings about yourself when it's your physical body, it's your person that's doing something that's not helping you sing to the best of your ability. It's a real mind game. And even this is its own research hole, friends, because many people have done uh, wonderful research on um, on the process of singing. And I think one of the things that helped me a lot in under, or in graduate school, was reading a book called The Singer's Ego. It's released by GIA Publications, and for the life of me right now, I can't remember that wonderful author. We'll put it in the show notes. Oh, that's perfect. Okay, good. Show notes it is. 
Um, but The Singer's Ego was a wonderful book that helped me to disassociate um, the voice from my personal worth as a human being, you know. Wow. And, and Stephen uh, recommended I read the book, and I absolutely loved it. And it was really helpful to me so that I could focus on that bel canto style. I could focus on vocal technique and improving as an artist while still remembering that I am a whole person just as I am and I have worth and value as a human soul and as a person aside from what my voice is doing on any particular day or if I haven't practiced a lot. <laughs> Man, Jamie, if, if anyone asked me whether you get in your head when you sing... I would have always guessed no because like all in all the years I've watched you sing it's like you go somewhere else like you um it see it's from an outsider's perspective like an audience perspective it seems like when you sing mm-hmm. you specifically Jamie like it's so cheesy but I want to say like blossom like like it it's I, it feels like I'm watching someone do something elevated. Thank you. That's and very kind. I, and you've always seemed that way. So I'm like, wow. And even while doing that, you were in your head sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. It, it, takes, it takes practice um, to, to really just let your body do the work. You know, once, you, once you've done the training, once you've done the practice, um, Muscle memory definitely kicks in, and that can be such a gift. <laughs> um, but thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I really feel most alive when I perform for people. Yeah. Um, and I can specifically remember how much fun I had playing the role of Hansel with South Bend Lyric Opera in, um, in 2018. We did Hansel and Gretel. And I was so thrilled because I think it was my first, it, well, it was my first title role in a long time. I'll say that. Um, and you know something like I've totally identified as being, I, I decided that my Hansel was like 12 years old and I really identified with being a 12 year old boy. <laughs> it was so funny. I just, I loved him. I love Hansel. He is so silly. He is so, he's like, he's like a weird, I don't know. Um, he, he's a little trickster curmudgeon um, <laughs> of a big brother to Gretel. I, I view Gretel as being younger than he, but, um, but of course she's the more sensible of the two. I could see you accessing that energy for sure. Thank you. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, and I think being a mezzo-soprano um, uh, for such a large part of my uh, training and career um, it was always so fun because mezzos get a lot of the quote unquote pants roles. Um, so, you know, these roles were written for, these roles were written in, in higher ranges. However, in Italy, um, because women were not usually permitted on the stage, uh, you had the castrati. And just as it sounds, you had men who were castrated so that their voices did not mature and that they still held this very light, um, high feminine quality so that they could play females on stage. Over time, as women were permitted to perform and it was no longer considered scandalous, um, 
women began taking on these roles that were usually played, they were usually young boys. Um, so of course they had to have higher voices than their older male stage counterparts. Um, but you usually have mezzo-sopranos for these roles and it's a lot of fun. So what brought you to um, thinking about perspectives between East and West in bel canto singing? Bel canto singing. Yeah, bel canto singing. You got it. Um, That's a great question. And of course, pants rolls are another research hole. We can add that to the podcast. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Things that Jamie hasn't researched yet or done yet. Okay, anyway. Um, So I thought a lot, I started to think a lot about East and West. Um during my time as assistant director of music and liturgy for the Sisters of the Holy Cross. The Sisters of the Holy Cross are an international congregation of women religious. Um, They are Catholic women religious, and they have um, wonderful ministries in North America, South America, the continent of Africa, um, India, and Bangladesh on the Asian continent. And by... Women religious, do you mean sisters? Like Correct. They're Catholic sisters. I learned from Jamie recently that nuns and sisters are different, but they, it's they it's are. in the same sort of realm is mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Yeah. You are correct. Yet another research hole again. <laughs> um, sisters are women religious who live an apostolic lifestyle, meaning, I'm hearkening back to the word apostle, um, meaning one that is sent out, one that, one that lives among the people to minister and live out their mission or their, their charism. Um, there's also a group of women religious called nuns. And typically, though we can use the word sister and nun interchangeably in colloquial you know, conversation, um, a nun technically lives a cloistered lifestyle. She is closed off from the world And her ministry is usually that of prayer. So you wouldn't see a nun walking, you know, into into a a children's shelter to minister. Her ministry would be behind the walls of her her convent or her monastery. Like the nuns in Sister Act, like before Whoopi Goldberg got them out of their shells. Exactly right. Um, Or or maybe even like a Benedictine uh, sisters who who chant and pray and who have various ministries around their their convent, um, they certainly lead a life of faithful service. It's just lived out in a different way. Right. Like there are real life examples, Val, not just Sister Act, which is confusing because Sister Act is called Sister Act, but technically they're not sisters. They're nuns. Exactly. You got it, girl. Amen. Sorry. So I I feel like I keep leading you off to the side. You were saying- I totally love it. Okay, so so in my role, uh, which I, I worked with the Sisters of the Holy Cross and for them from 2013 to 2020, um, in my role as Assistant Director of Liturgy and Music, um, I would help to plan Sunday Masses, help to plan liturgies and prayer services, and I would help to um, just facilitate the liturgical life of the Sisters, which yet another research hole, as a lay woman, as a woman who has not taken religious vows of any sort, is a really big deal because um, as we might know, as, as some of our friends listening might know, the Catholic Church is an hierarchical system um, and it's a, it's a structure that um, really values 
religious. And so when, when a group of women religious says, Hey, we really want to partner with lay people. It's really wonderful because I think that, that, uh, the sisters of the Holy cross really value our input. They value our experience and they're committed to working side by side with people who haven't taken religious vows. You know, maybe they're married or like myself, I was single and I was a student. So all that to say, um, one of my functions as one of the two full-time music ministers was running the choir. I, I helped to conduct and prepare the choir to sing at a whole bunch of masses or liturgical celebrations and prayer services. And considering that I was a middle school music teacher, I absolutely loved working with the choir at the Sisters of the Holy Cross and at their mother house, the Church of Our Lady of Loretto. Um, we, because they're an international group of women religious, of Catholic sisters, they had novices come to St. Mary's, Notre Dame, Indiana, for their novitiate. And a novice is a young woman who is um, in the formation stages of being a Catholic sister, in this case. And so our novices came from all over the world. They came from Ghana, Uganda, Kenya, Bangladesh, India, some from Brazil, uh, and some from Mexico. Um, and it was wonderful to see all of these women from all over the world in one place and to help them learn English, yet another research hole, um, they would sing in the choir with us. And it was so interesting to hear how each of the sisters sang. So this oh. is where, yeah, this is where I got my inspiration for really thinking more about the concept of beautiful singing between the Eastern world, in my personal experience, India and Bangladesh, and the Western world, North America, South America, and Europe. Um, the question, of course, yet for yet another research hole, is where does Africa fit into that conversation? Uh, because to me, Africa is like in the middle of the world, and, and what is their experience? with music making, obviously it's, um, it is, I think it's a, it's a wonderfully large part of their culture. Um, colonialism affects a lot of Africa. And so you've got to wonder how do they view singing? So yet another research hole, but, th but this is why I'm so into it because working with these amazing young women and singing with them, you know, I didn't just teach them Val, they taught me and that was one of the greatest blessings of being in ministry with the Sisters of the Holy Cross, was I got to learn music from other parts of the world. I got to learn worship songs and rhythms and dances. And I got to learn different instruments from the different cultures that the sisters' lives represented. So what are some of the differences you noticed? So the thing that interested me was how the sisters, how the young women produced tone. And to that extent, what was, what was considered normal for them? You know what I mean? Um, for an American born singer myself, I could listen to a sister from India or Bangladesh sing. And even as an untrained singer, I might say, oh, it sounds like, like Val mentioned earlier, it sounds like they're singing from their throat. Um, or I remember doing some mission work in Brazil, um, and 
I have a very dear friend who is a priest, American raised, but has done ministry in Brazil his whole career. Um, and he will tell me that his Brazilian parishioners sound like they're pushing or they always sing so loudly. And that got me thinking, Val, like, what is the concept of beautiful singing between the East and the West? What terms do we think of as, as consumers of music and as students of music and as performers and teachers like myself? How can I judge these young women, to use the word in its literal sense, right? Mm -hmm. As a teacher, how can I judge and assess their singing and be fair to their culture, even though be, because I am a woman from North America who has learned and been trained in the bel canto style. Because when I listen to a group of sisters from Bangladesh sing um, sing a song at a, at a religious profession, and for those of our friends listening who may not know, a religious profession is a rite of passage for a a religious person who takes vows and they literally profess vows of um, whatever poverty, chastity, and obedience, as well as following their congregation for a specific period of time. So when these young women would make their profession of vows, we would sing not only songs in English, um, we would also sing songs in their language. So I learned songs in Bangla and I learned songs in um, Swahili. And their songs were beautiful, just the way they were singing them. And that's how I got into this um, idea behind what are the differences in beautiful singing in East and West? And what are some of the things I can do as a voice teacher and performer to learn more about it so that I can be a more informed performer and a more inclusive teacher as I continue to grow? Good. I'm so glad you were asking yourself those questions. Thank you. Um, I would imagine, I don't know. I hope everyone would, but I would imagine not everyone would. Um, some people are very set in their ways. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I wonder, um, so when you, for like the example you gave, when you sang songs in Bangla, did yeah. you try to sing it the way that, they sung it? I did not. Um, and that's a great question. Thank you for thinking about that. Um, I sang it with my own voice. You know, I think that um, for me, I think beautiful singing, you know, if you look beyond that bel canto 17th through 19th century concept, I think that beautiful singing, even in the Western world, has evolved with singers and teachers like um, Caroline Hilton and David Jones. Caroline teaches at the University of Michigan and David has a studio in New York City. Um, they've really done a lot of wonderful research and um, their own work into what makes healthy and beautiful singing. And so even they, I would say, would, would advocate for the authenticity of a specific voice. So all that to say, no, when the sisters taught me songs, um, I can think of my, my friend's sister, uh, Lexmi, and her favorite piece, which we sang at her profession, Asian Dor Lagane. Like I would just sing it in my voice. I would sing it as Jamie. Now, would I add as much vibrato? Would I make it sound bel canto? Not really. 
I would probably back off on that um, because it wouldn't be right, you know? I would rather sing it the casual and free way I would sing Happy Birthday um, or a Christmas carol, you know, that I'm singing around the, I, I identify as a Catholic Christian. So it's easy for me to use that example. Um, but that's how it fits into the things that Jamie hasn't done yet. Exactly. <laughs> so you're trying to figure out, oh, that's interesting. Because yeah. I don't know that I've had anyone on who hasn't done the research yet. <laughs> um, you're, you're not sure if you've had anyone on as lazy as me. <laughs> Well, I mean, it got cut short too, right? I mean, you were doing that work and then you got a new job and moved across the country. Correct. And and the, um, you know, I think we were all in a, a phase of shock and denial and anger and all those various stages of grief during the onset of the coronavirus pandemic last March. So I was, um, I was indeed um, pre-pandemic thinking a lot about going back to school for my doctorate um, and this would have been one of the research holes that I was very keen on pursuing as a doctoral candidate in music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you think it could fit into your life now? Like, um, in my role at Alvernia, um, I still get to interact with our sponsoring congregation, the Bernadine Franciscan Sisters. They originated in Poland and uh, they moved to the United States to respond to the needs of Polish immigrants and their children in Pennsylvania. Um, And so they followed the call to uh, assemble an orphanage and later a school and later a college for women. And now that college for women has become co-ed and and has grown and blossomed into Alvernia University where I'm currently ministering. So one of the things that I still get to do is interact with sisters. And one of the, (laughs) um, it's fun because um, the local minister, the local superior of the community has spoken with me about a sister, not from an Eastern country, but from Haiti. And she would like this particular sister to get some more training in the voice so that she can understand and learn English a little bit better. So I still find myself asking these questions and um, thinking about how singing can really help people with language and how to approach singing in different perspectives. That gets me thinking about what you said before about singing um, these women's favorite songs or songs that are special to them in their own Mm -hmm. tongue, right? Um, right? In their own language. And I wonder if you could start your research by, like, if you asked this woman to sing a favorite childhood song, even if it was like a lullaby or something really simple, and you use that as your root, like you went home and researched like the history of that song, and it would be a way to like start by learning about them. Absolutely. And that, and then learning about. And then, like, figuring out where to go from there. I don't know how you would bridge it into voice training exactly. Guys, Val is totally helping me write my doctoral dissertation tonight. You heard it here first. Well, I mean, me giving advice uh, to a singer is is very silly. Um, I love it. But I'm totally going to reference this in my work cited. (laughs) But I'm saying, like, 
I don't know, just the way we would take, I'm sure you took a bunch of education classes in undergrad the way I did. I did, yes. Um, because you became a music teacher and how they would think about like, they talked about scaffolding, right? Mm, yes, And right. you would always need to start from a place where the student, you can't give the student, you can't give a kindergartner like algebra Unless right. they're like a really advanced fucking kindergartner. <laughs> no kidding. Unless they're Charles Wallace. Like <laughs> you have <Right>. to <laughs> like you have to start with, with somewhere where they have a frame of reference and Correct. then like build and build, and, build and build. What are you working on right now vocally these days? Um, speaking of things Jamie has started but hasn't finished. Um, I'm going to be connecting later on this fall with a pianist here in PA um, to do a recording of Robert Schumann's Frauenleben und Leben of life, of a woman's life and love. And what I've done is I've paired these, uh, these pieces. It is a song cycle by Schumann. Um, I've paired the pieces with songs of a similar sentiment from the Broadway stage. And I call the the kind of amalgamation of these sets um, love in stages. Um, Ooh. Yeah. So I will be revisiting. I, I presented this recital in 2018 with my friend, Dr. Caleb Wenzel. Um, we were going to record it. We didn't have enough time to do so. Uh, he's now doing wonderful work off in Michigan. Um, as a director of choral activities uh, at one of the community colleges there. And so now that I'm here in PA and I've connected with Martin, who himself is a fabulous pianist, I think I'd like to resurrect that work and finally get the the songs recorded. Do you know what Broadway songs you want to pair do. them with? Yes, I do. Yes, I've already done that work. Um, so I, I've chosen songs like If I Were a Bell from... Um, Guys and Dolls, What I Did for Love from A Chorus Line. Love that fucking song. I do too. It's so good. It's so cheesy and I like it a lot. Yes, absolutely. So in Frauenleben und Leben, um, Robert Schumann takes what he believes to be a woman's perspective on life and love. So of course we start with the woman seeing her beloved for the first time and how she's so excited and awoken with this passion. Um, We move on to the woman getting married, having a child, and then finally, the end of the song cycle is the woman grieving her deceased husband. And what what made Schumann's work so innovative at the time was that he was, even though he was a man, (laughs) um, (laughs) he was was writing for a woman in the first person. This was a woman's voice from a woman's perspective. So even though there's irony here in that he is a dude, it was still important that this was the woman speaking as the woman herself, not somebody else. And Um, people before that sang about women, but not like it from the first person. That's right. That's right. Huh. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. So where does what I did for love fall in? So I'm thinking that um, what I did for love falls in at the end of the cycle when the woman is singing about losing her love and losing her husband. Um, what I did for love 
goes to the end of that because the song cycle itself really does end on a note of hope um, and that, that, that thought of hope is continued in the piano. In German Lieder, what makes it one of my favorite genres to sing is the relationship of text and piano. The relationship not only between text and music, but also between the way that the piano interacts with the voice to create this, um, uh, what, what is the word I'm looking for? This relationship of music, right? So the piano has an equal role to the voice. And so the song cycle, even though the woman is singing about her lost love, the piano continues to play this beautiful postlude to the voice, and it ends on a very hopeful note. It even harkens back to the first song in the cycle where you kind of hear that same melody. And so you kind of think, oh, she's remembering. She, or maybe she's starting again. Or maybe her life is continuing on. It's so interesting. And I yeah. love that nuance. That totally well, to, works with what I did for love. Doesn't it? Because you're still saying love is never gone. As we travel on, love's what we'll remember. Yeah. So I think it's, and point me toward tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. Wish me luck the same to you. So we still have this this um this feeling of hope and resilience that i think schumann is also giving us in frauen lieben und leben damn what a cool project i love it it's very fun it's a passion project of mine it is indeed on the list of things jamie hasn't finished but you know what like you said earlier we are all still learning we are all works in progress you said the other one was there was one other Broadway song you remembered. It was from Guys and Dolls. If, if I, I were, were a bell. Okay. Yeah. Yep, um, so that I imagine would correspond to that part of the song cycle where she's Correct. like being all flirty and stuff. Exactly right. So in the song cycle, um, so in this, oh boy, why can't I remember the words? Um, but anyway, in the cycle, the woman is getting ready for her wedding and she's asking her sister to help her get ready and, and be prepared to meet her beloved. And to me, even though if I were a bell is all about, um, ask, asking her how she feels and she's a little intoxicated at this point in the musical, I just, I think about that freedom and that joy as being a really good pairing. Yeah. So, are you ready to do a segment called Something I Learned This Week? Yes. <laughs> this is from our good friend of the podcast, Leah Lucci. Um, okay. Leah sent me an email called, Pythagoras was obsessed with beans. Ooh. Um, do you know who Pythagoras is? I do. He was a, a Greek um, mathematician and philosopher who came up with the Pythagorean theorem. Yeah, the triangle one. Heck yeah. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That's right. Good memory, man. I haven't done Thanks. math in a real long time, but I did remember mm. Pythagoras triangles. There you go. Okay. He was obsessed with beans, apparently. Hmm. Um, so this email says, behold this sentence. <laughs> 
The world may also never know exactly how Pythagoras died, but almost every story ends with him sacrificing his life in order to save a field of fava beans, a.k.a. the souls of dead ancestors. <laughs> that is quite what? a sentence. <laughs> Um, and then Leah linked me to a link, museumhack.com slash the mag- madness of Pythagoras. So I'm mm. clicking on that link to see if we could learn any more. This is saying. Val reads really fast, you guys. I'm skimming. I love it. <laughs> also, it's like, this is not an in-depth article. It has three sources, but it's like trying to write in a cool way. So it's like uh, Pythagoras. The number 10 was the big daddy of this new faith. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's the word duh is in there. Pythagoras oh, and his followers either even had a sacred symbol called a tetra- tetractus. That was a triangle. Duh. <laughs> 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 so it's easy to read. Um, and also, I'm going to like check these sources because the way that this is written actually makes me suspicious. Um, oh, my gosh. But anyway, apparently... Pythagoras was kind of a cult leader in that Ooh. he had a bunch of followers. Um, followers had to do a lot of weird shit, um, including like you had to be silent for five years, which proved your devotion. What? Um, I'm out. <laughs> you are also supposed to abstain from sex or at least try your hardest to. <laughs> Pythagoras knew this was a tough ask, so he told his followers to save all of their adding of parts for the winter time and subtract lovemaking from the summer months. So he was like, okay, be celibate, but if you can't be celibate, celibate, only fuck in the winter. Well, I mean, it was a good way to keep warm, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I so cuffing season. Um, yeah. And anyway... Hmm. He was obsessed with the fava bean. Why? Um, he claimed fava beans contained souls of the dead. Okay. Um, the world may never know exactly how Pythagoras died, but almost every story ends with him sacrificing his life to save a field of fava beans. We're not sure what danger awaited the fava beans. We're sure it was pretty serious. <laughs> What the fuck is this article? You know what? I I used to write this kind of stuff when I was a freelancer. I wrote for a website, not naming names. But the whole point was to make study guides sound cool. Okay. By, like, trying to write on the kids' level. So you'd be like, LOL, like, later, like... Juliet, like when you were doing like a study guide of uh, Romeo and Juliet or something. Um. <laughs> so like they went to see Friar, whatever his name was, and <laughs> God, what was his name? I want to say Lawrence. Friar. Was it Friar, Friar Lawrence? Lawrence? You're right, because I oh, wanted yeah. to say Friar Tuck, but that's from the. I wanted to say Friar Tuck too. That's from the animated Robin Hood. I guess I'm going to, like, look up a few more things about this fava beans fact. Just... I mean, I want to, but I can't type right now, so you Yeah, you're in should. a closet. Um, okay, wait. Scientificamerican.com. 
This is also written in a like down to earth tone. Um, everyone's trying to be like not stuffy when they talk about Pythagoras. Okay. When he wasn't busy coming up with theories about triangles, Pythagoras spent his time coming up with reasons to hate beans. (laughs) Ancient philosophers, including Aristotle and Cicero, attempted to explain Pythagoras' aversion to fava beans. One theory was they were forbidden due to their resemblance of both male and female genitalia. Now I have to look at pictures of fava beans. I mean... What? I don't... I don't understand. I don't think they look like either. No, they look like a kidney, which is why they call them kidney beans. Right. Are kidney beans Uh, and fava beans the same thing? I don't think so, but that might be... They're similar, man. Wait a second. Can you please Google, are fava beans and kidney beans the same thing? Yes. Thank you. We can learn that. I think that's going to be a little simpler. Um, Yeah. That sounds great. We're going to end it there. Okay. Trying to find a good source here and not just click on the first source. Smart. Boys and girls, I hope you pay attention to that. Fuck. This is not easy. I thought this would be really easy. Damn it, research. Why are you difficult? Did you like type in, are fava beans and kidney beans the same thing? Yeah, but I was trying not to click on the first thing because the first thing is from like a bullshit source. Like, it's from some PDF. Who knows who made this PDF? Fava beans are broad beans. They're actually part of the pea family. Those bastards. Don't bring peas into this. Where's the kidney beans? Oh, my God. Kidney beans are... Okay, this is saying kidney beans and cannellini beans are the same thing. They are the same, yes. Oh, you knew that. I did know that. The kidney bean is a variety of the common bean... Uh, extra good sources of protein. Oh, my God. I don't think they're the same, Jamie. Okay. (laughs) I don't think they are either. But now what we have to find out is, what makes them different, Val? I challenge our listeners, if any of you want to fall down this research hole farther, I think I'm done. I, I (laughs) I would love for one of you to tell me like, tell okay. me what the source was. Like, go to a trusted source and say, and find out what differentiates kidney beans from fava beans. There you go. Great job giving them homework. I mean, it's 9 p.m. Pythagoras, you are nuts. Fava beans, what are you? <laughs> are you having an identity crisis? And did we just make this a Halloween episode by suggesting that Pythagoras wrote that really weird... Um, article that Val found online. Hey, uh, Jamie. Yo. If people want to look you up, maybe hear you sing. Cool. Is there a place to like listen to you sing online or is that not a thing? No, that's totally a thing. Um, I have a website, www.jamiecaparizzo.com. And you can listen to some um, video recordings and audio recordings there. Um, During the pandemic, I did have a pastime of making COVID parodies. Um, You can find those on YouTube as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, I remember that. That was a delight. Thank you very much. Oh, that's so kind. Thank (laughs) you. I might have to quote you um, to literally say, a delight. (laughs) A delight. Val Hallett. (laughs) 
Okay. Well, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate oh. it. I, it was, <laughs> this was so much fun. It thank was fascinating. Really interesting cool. stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm excited to um, research it further. I think this has been the catalyst I needed to um, A, get in touch with Marty Mellinger and B, think a little bit more about um, bel canto singing and what it means. You just cool. listened to Research Hall. I'm Val Howlett. Our music is by Joey Howlett. Our logo is by Leah Felicity Lucci. Goodbye.
feel, I don't know, I just feel really comfortable. So thank you oh, so good. much for being awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's just, it's just great. Thank you.